The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at Athey Creek Christian Fellowship. We are studying through Isaiah, so why don't you grab your Bible, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13. Glad you're with us tonight, getting in the scriptures. Um, Do you ever wonder when we get to heaven, you know, what we're going to think about the time that we spent on this earth, you know, and and what was really valuable and what was eternal in value. I think that these Wednesday nights and times where we get together and get in the Word, I have a hunch when we get to heaven, we're going to be so glad. That was the best time we perhaps spent, uh, no matter what. Uh, you know, some people would say, Are you guys doing what on a Wednesday night? Well, I think it's eternal in value, and the Lord's going to bless it. And His Word, getting into Scripture, is always fruitful and always a blessing. So, Isaiah chapter 13. We left kind of last week off on that beautiful section of the millennial kingdom description. Um, And Isaiah sort of sweeps in and out throughout his book of the various future that's going to happen. And and one thing I'd like to remind you, and if you're just joining us in the study, in order to understand Isaiah, you have to understand there's oftentimes a dual fulfillment of prophecies that Isaiah gives. And, and that's true in the Bible. There's, there's several places. Uh, even the book of Daniel has dual and sometimes even triple fulfillments. Um, some people call them progressive f- fulfillments where it's partially fulfilled um, or, and, then, and then it's fully fulfilled in a f- much further date. Um, or there's other ones that are um, called the, 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 the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment. It depends on who you talk to or who you're reading, but um, scholars, as they study this book, they realize there were local fulfillments for Isaiah and the children of Israel during that time of his, you know, prophesying. But oftentimes his gaze would go past their time period, way off into the future eras. And uh, you see that much in the book of Isaiah, and it will help you understand. Um, and, And you say, well, but that's kind of mysterious. Why does the Bible do that? It seems confusing. One of the reasons the Bible tells us is that we will understand prophecy better as the time gets closer to the end. Um, you know, and, and uh, there's a lot of reasons why Bible prophecy made no sense. Even 500 years ago, it'd be almost impossible to interpret biblical prophecy. Um, that's why when Daniel closed up his book, the Lord said, Daniel, seal up the words of this book until the time of the end. At the end of the book of Revelation, John was told, do not seal up the words of this book. Um, And I believe we've seen an unsealing of the prophecies of the book of Daniel and Isaiah, Ezekiel. You know, uh, many of the futuristic prophecies are coming to pass as we speak. Um, You could say, for example, all the messianic prophecies have been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Many prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Remember, behold, a, a virgin will bring forth a child. That's happened. Check that box. Uh, but that was a far fulfillment uh, of uh, Isaiah's prophecy. You know, in Ezekiel, it talks about the regathering of the children of Israel from being scattered all over the world and that the Lord would regather them back into their land, Israel. No other nation, people, group in the world has been scattered for a couple thousand years only to regroup and maintain their identity as a, as a nation. But the Jews have done that just like the Bible said they would. And on and on we can go about, you know, the prophecies concerning Israel, concerning the end, 
And, uh, and it's really important that you see there's a dual fulfillment. In this passage here, we have such a thing. And it's, it's a very clear, you know, uh, fulfillment uh, locally at the time of Isaiah that was about to happen. And then there will be a, a futuristic version. And you'll see where Isaiah, oftentimes you see more of a local uh, application. That is the cities and vicinity around the ancient people of Isaiah's time. And then when you see him go further, it's more of a global uh, mention uh, where, you know, people see stuff globally. And that's when you start realizing, hey, maybe we're talking about the very end of all things. Um, and that's important. By the way, that, that's a great rule of thumb when you're interpreting Bible prophecy. Some people, for example, say Matthew 24, when they asked Jesus, when's the end of the world? And Jesus said, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilence, diverse, uh, you know, uh, earthquakes in diverse places. It'll be like a woman in childbearing. And, and Jesus starts talking about what, what I believe is the end of the world. But some people don't want to believe that. They want to believe that it was just a prophecy that would be fulfilled in AD 70 when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. And they say, that's, Matthew 24 is already fulfilled. Well, first problem I have is that's not the end of the world. Second problem I have with that is it's a localized thing that happened in Jerusalem. It was just a city, not, the, not even a nation. It was a city that Ma- uh, Matthew 24 would have fulfilled, if they, those that believe that. And if you read Matthew 24 and 25, you realize that prophecy is global where the world would be shaken by the sun and the moon being darkened and all this stuff. It wasn't just a little city of Jerusalem. It's a global thing. So keep the scope in mind. When you're reading something that's global, you're thinking more of the futuristic end times stuff. When it's more of a localized city, oftentimes it's, it's more of the near prophecy. Um, and uh, we'll see that even tonight in kind of an interesting way. So um, we saw the millennial kingdom in chapter 11 and 12, but now we're going to look at something separate, and it's, it shifts gears here in chapter 13. And we're going to read about God's judgment on Babylon. On Babylon. Now, let's get this into perspective. Isaiah's day, were the Babylonians a powerhouse? The answer, no. They were sort of up-and-comers. Um, they weren't in great power at this time. But it was actually, if you remember, it was the Assyrians that everybody was afraid of. The Assyrians had conquered much of the known world back then. And, and basically, Isaiah, who's living during this time that Assyria conquered the 10 tribes. Remember the 10 northern tribes? Isaiah was part of the two southern tribes, which was called Judah. The 10 northern tribes split, you know, after civil war into the northern tribes called Israel. Now, it would be in 722 BC that those northern tribes would be taken by the Assyrians and this would happen during Isaiah's lifetime, the, the Assyrian conquering of the northern ten tribes. But Isaiah would also predict in these chapters that we're about to read the destruction of Babylon, which would occur long after his death. After Isaiah was gone, um, the Babylonians would wipe out Judah, where he was from, Isaiah, and he would predict that um, in Isaiah. But he'll also predict the doom of Babylon and the king of Babylon. And um, the prophecy against Babylon and her destruction, destruction will be described here. But here's where you have to understand that it's going to go much further than just the local Babylonian empire uh, of Isaiah's time. Um, there's a key word. Let's sneak preview verse 6 of chapter 13. In verse 6 of chapter 13, he says, How will ye for the day of the Lord is at hand? Now, that should be a red flag for all of you. If you're a Bible prophecy buff, the day of the Lord is, a, is something you don't want to just pass over lightly. 
What is the day of the Lord? When you come across that in the Bible, I hope you understand the day of the Lord is that day when God intervenes within humanity. Um, you know, people say, well, if God is love, why doesn't he help people today? Um, the truth is he's going to. He's going to intervene with the, the plight of humanity, with the actions of Satan and his demons. There's coming a day where, where God's going to tangibly, visibly uh, intervene. Right now, we talked about this on Sunday. Satan's the prince of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air of this world. And, um, and God has let us deal with our own sin uh, to a degree. Uh, now, God, you know, of course, dealt with our sin when he became a man, lived among us, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and then ascended into heaven. But that's not what is called the day of the Lord. When Jesus came and visited us, that's the first advent. Um, but when's the day of the Lord going to happen? I believe the day of the Lord is defined when God says, okay, it's time. It's almost like there's going to be a little alarm that goes off. And that alarm is like, okay. Um, and there's a few things that the alarm goes off. What happens? First, the fullness of the Gentiles. God's Gentile church that were saved, believing in Jesus. That's the age we live in, the church age right now. And it includes Gentiles and Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah um, there's a time where that fullness of the Gentiles will come in. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, 26, right in that area. It says that, that when that fullness of the Gentile comes in, there's something cataclysmic that's going to happen. And that is, I believe, the day of the Lord begins. The last Gentile that needs to get saved, uh, whenever that happens, uh, I believe that could mark the next thing on the list, the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter four, where we which are alive and remain will be caught up to, to be with the Lord. And that's, that's what was some people call the rapture. You say, well, rapture is not even in the Bible, the word. Exactly. It's not in the English translation, but it's in the Latin translation. And it's also harpazo in the Greek. It's caught up in the air in the King James English. Um, it means we're just going to meet the Lord. Christians, the Gentile church is going to meet the Lord in, in the air and we're going to be with him. But those two things, the fullness of the Gentiles, the rapture of the church, I believe that's what kicks off what is called the day of the Lord. That's where God intervenes. And the first thing he's going to do on the day of the Lord is we're going to see what he does here. He's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting, arrogant, sinful world. And that's what we're going to read about even tonight when the day of the Lord begins. It's going to be uh, startling. Now, um, I realize for many people who were raised in an era where everybody got a blue ribbon and you all have your safe spaces and your safe animals and all that stuff, this might be tough for you, but it's time to toughen up and realize um, what's true and what's real. God is love, and he has reached out his love and, and salvation to anyone who would receive it. But you have to also understand God is righteous, and he's full of wrath against those who would be arrogant against him, and he's going to execute righteousness during the day of the Lord. Um, don't forget that part of God. That's the part you'll never hear from Joel Steen or other pastors that only like to talk about victory and hope and goodness and kindness. Those are great topics. I love those topics. I talk about them all the time. But if you're going to talk about God, you really need to tell the whole story. And the whole story is, yes, God is righteous and he's kind. He's the judge, but he's also just He's, he's the one who's going to execute wrath, but he's also going to rapture his church out before the wrath comes down. 
He, you know, for every part of God's righteous, holy indignation and wrath that he's going to pour out, there's something beautiful about what he's done so that you don't have to be a part of that. And uh, that's going to be an important thing for you to understand. So what is my safe space? Jesus. That's where the safe space is. It's, uh, uh, by the way, I heard of a, I read a story just today of a, of a safe space that they created um, in a certain town for people, but it became a place where everybody was doing drug deals and uh, they were safe because the cops weren't there. And the neighborhood was complaining because the safe space was starting to have people killed by gang members and stuff. Uh, our little, you know, pseudo safe places and stuff, that's wacko. Jesus is the safe space. If you want to avoid the wrath of God, the destruction of the world, all the scary stuff we're about to read, you need to know Jesus Christ personally. You have to accept Christ, the gift of God, which is salvation for us sinners, that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave. And anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, they're on, they're on the safe space. They're on the good side. They're on the winning side. Um, it's all through Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church, uh, the, the end of the Gentile church era. And then you've got this seven-year period called the tribulation where God's pouring out his wrath for those seven years. And at the end of the seven years, he's going to return. Christ is going to return with 10,000s of his saints. And there, do away with, for a while, Satan. We read about that on Sunday. Uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet, all the battle of Armageddon is going to happen at that last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And that's where stupidly the world and, you know, Satan and his, you know, troops will turn their weapons toward Jesus, the returning king. Stupid, not real bright, because um, I don't think those weapons are going to have any effect on um, our, their second coming of Christ, nor will it have any effect on those who are returning with them. That's us, by the way. So I know it sounds uh, amazing, but you have to understand right now, God has supernaturally pulled his hands off of that, you know, intervening on humanity. But don't be mistaken. The, the Bible says there is coming a day of the Lord where he'll intervene, pour out his wrath, and that's going to happen. Uh, and we'll see that uh, perhaps tonight. So the, the near application, of course, is Isaiah talking about Babylon, which was an, uh, a rising power of that era, of Isaiah's time. And he was going to say someday the Babylonians are going to come and wipe out Jerusalem, but then they're going to be wiped out in turn. And we'll read about that. So this prophecy of, uh, you know, Babylon's destruction would be partially fulfilled in 539 BC, by the way. Um, and we'll talk about that when the Medes and the Persians came and trounced the Babylonians and took over that empire. We'll mention that tonight. Um, the, the prophecy concerning Babylon looked far into the future, uh, into the uh, book of Revelation. And if you're interested, you can either pick up our studies on Revelation and go through that if you want to dial it in. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 deal with the destruction and the fall of Babylon. And that's Isaiah's you know, far prophecy. And that's going to happen during that period called the tribulation period. And there's some real interesting, I guess um, I would call it hypothesis of how that's going to shake out. You know, is Babylon going to be a literal place? Is it where the literal ancient Babylon was? Um, it's interesting that when Saddam Hussein, those of you guys remember Saddam, uh, when he was in power in Iraq, he was rebuilding Babylon and he was putting a lot of money and effort into trying to revive the ancient city from out of the desert sand. And, um, 
And then, you know, we came through Desert Storm and later on, the, you know, Desert Shield and all this. And we took, you know, control of that region. And the, 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 of course, Saddam Hussein was executed and, uh, and the rebuilding of Babylon ceased. And so the question is, 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 the, is the ancient Babylon going to be restored and rebuilt into a future place called Babylon, where it's going to be this religious and economic center of the world? And uh, that's possible. That could happen. Uh, it's not happening now. And it would happen either, you know, it would start happening either sometime before the tribulation period or once the tribulation period started, they could very quickly, you know, build Babylon up and to be this center place, place of the world. So that could happen. But many people are starting to say, I wonder if Babylon in the future is a place that's not necessarily the same place where ancient Babylon sat. And, you know, you'll hear people talk about New York City as Wall Street being economic Babylon or, or Rome being religious Babylon, you know, an epicenter of religion or, you know, and, and there's all this speculation. Um, is, is, it, is it something that's on, online, you know? It's more of a virtual religious and economic Babylon. So when you're reading the book of Revelation chapter 17, you read about the fall of religious Babylon. It's going to be this ecumenical uh, movement where all religions come together. You know, Pope Francis, by the way, has said, we're all the children of God. I don't know if you saw this. And he had a Muslim cleric and he had a Buddhist and different people behind him. And, and he made that claim. Uh, that's not a very Catholic thing to say, by the way, if you're, you know, into Catholic doctrine. Uh, but uh, uh, that's kind of the way he is, more of a synchristic, more of an um, ecumenical move. And by the way, that's what religious Babylon's going to be. It's going to be an amalgamation of all the religious systems. That's whatever's left after the rapture of the church. Isn't that an interesting thought? What happens to the churches and the religious cults and all the people, whether it's Protestant churches or Catholic churches or, or you know, whatever kind of churches, after the rapture of the church, whatever's left, which is anyone who's not really a believer in Jesus Christ, then that's what the Bible says after the rapture church, that's all going to kind of move together to become form sort of one religious system. We're already seeing signs of that effort to, to bring all religion together, put us all on the same page. I hope you're not part of that ecumenical movement. Don't be. We need to come out, be separate, the Bible says, and doctrine should separate us. We have uh, doctrines from the Bible that we stick to and we don't move from those. I hope you're one who's a stickler for doctrine, even if you look like a, an old school marm or an old school master and saying, we're going to stick to doctrine. I don't care if people say that about me. I'm going to stick to it and not be these um, so open-minded your brains are falling out kind of people. Don't do that. But that's what's going to happen. Religious Babylon is going to come together, one world religion. Revelation 17 says that that's all going to crumble during the tribulation period. And the second thing is economic Babylon, which is... Um, right there in Revelation chapter 18. So 17 is religious Babylon, Revelation 18 is economic Babylon. And, you know, it says it'll fall. Oh, Babylon has fallen, has fallen. And, and, and you know, in, in a short amount of time, Babylon's going to fall economically during the tribulation period. And that's going to be this economic system that the world, the world leader Antichrist is going to set up uh, to have his, uh, you know, mark of the beast, buying and selling, an economic system. It's going to be his system and the world's going to go for it and love it. But that's going to come crumbling down in Revelation chapter 18, which is the end of the uh, tribulation period because in chapter 19 of Revelation, 
That's where the second coming of Christ is found, that Christ comes with 10,000s of his saints after religious Babylon has fallen, economic Babylon has fallen, then Christ returns and does a final blow to the armies of the world there. Um, okay, so all that to say, this, this futuristic description from Revelation chapter 17 and 18, this is where Isaiah is gonna sort of tap into that, both near prophecy and far prophecy. I hope I didn't lose you in all that, but that's kind of the, the MO here of this passage. Um, uh, by the way, the victory of the Medes and the Persians over the Babylonians um, is even more amazing. And Isaiah is going to prophesy about that. And I'll talk about how uh, miraculous some of these prophecies are, even in the local um, application. But, you know, even in the, um, the beginning of the Christian era, you know, Babylon was still an important city with a large colony of Jews that lived there in Babylon. Even during the, the time of Christ, there were Jews living in Babylon. But um, instead of sudden destruction, Babylon was never suddenly destroyed in history. It actually slowly but surely became what it is today, just sort of the desert with some kind of half-built palaces and stuff that Saddam Hussein tried to build. Um, and um, uh, whether it's a literal city that will be rebuilt or a figurative city, uh, a political concept or whatever, um, God's gonna, gonna deal with Babylon. And that's what we were talking about here. Chapter 13, verse one. It says, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos did see. Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain. Exalt the voice unto them. Shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for that, uh, for mine anger. Even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude of, of the mountains, like as of a great people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Okay, so here in the first, you know, um, five verses, we have here the judgment of God upon Babylon. Now, what's interesting is he will use Babylon as a tool in 586 BC to wipe out Jerusalem because of the rebellion of the Jews. And so um, there's some language here, like in verse three, I have commanded my sanctified ones, which means he set apart certain people. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, um, even them that rejoice in my highness. So um, even the Jews, uh, God's people were reserved for God's wrath. Um, not total destruction of the Jews, but a corrective disciplining of a idol worshiping uh, heathen kind of Jewish population during that time uh, of the Babylonian invasion. And God set apart the Babylonian empire to be sort of the paddle, the spanking weapon, if you would, for a rebellious Jew uh, back in, in 586 BC. But God's saying, you were sort of my, my weapon, but now you're going to feel my wrath because Babylon was no, you know, saint. Uh, Babylon was very pagan. Um, do you guys remember who was the first king of Babylon? A guy by the name of Nimrod. <laughs> Nimrod is an interesting name, which um, he was the hunter. That's, that's what Nimrod means. And he was the guy there, at, remember at Babel? 
And there was an ancient religion that started there, mysterious or mystery Babylon religion. The Bible talks about it in other places. And it really became um, part of a lot of world religions, even to this day. There's, there's things, you know, um, Ashtaroth or Astarte or, um, you know, Venus, Cupid, uh, like all these gods and goddesses usually have their, their root somewhere back to ancient mystery Babylon during the time of Nimrod, Semiramis, Tammuz, these uh, ancient people back in Babel. Remember when God confused their language and scattered the people all over the world? It's because Nimrod was gaining in power. The people were uniting around kind of this um, evil sort of empire. And God said, nope, we're not going to let it get to that point yet. And so he confused their languages. But that was the beginning of Babylon, this city. Um, So Babylon, from the very earliest parts of Genesis, really, uh, was this evil place where humanity tried to puff themselves up and be the power sort of against God. Um, But God will uh, put his uh, wrath against those kingdoms. And that's what he's basically saying. There's going to be an army that will come not only from a far country, notice, but from the end of heaven. Now, that's an interesting phrase from the end of heaven. Who's coming to fight, you know, this, whether you're talking about the, you know, the, the city of Babylon in Isaiah's time, or what about the far future prophecy about Babylon being fallen in the book of Revelation? Um, we're that army that's going to return with Christ from the very ends of heaven to destroy Babylon. You see, this is where in verse five, we start to see the, the, um, the destruction of the whole land. Um, it's much bigger than just Jerusalem and what have, have you. So when he says in verse six, how will ye for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the almighty. Um, that, that's, that's where we start to realize, okay, we're not just talking about Isaiah's local time period. This is God giving to Isaiah prophecy concerning the end of the world, eschatology, the study of end times. That's where we're looking here. Verse seven, therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed as one at another. Their faces shall be as flames or like, um, you know, the margin, your margin says their face, um, faces of the flames. Their faces would be inflamed. The idea is with horror, with terror. Um, when Christ pours out his wrath, it's, it's going to be a horrible time. That, that really begins, if you recall, in the book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, that really kicks off in Revelation chapter 6, where it says this. I'll just read it to you again. Um, in Revelation six fifteen, it says, And the kings of the earth... The great men and rich men, the chief captains and mighty men and every bondman, every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said of the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? These are not Christians talking about the wrath of the lamb. These are people saying, man, we thought it was a joke, the wrath of the lamb, but now they're realizing no joke at all. And they're crying out to the rocks and to the mountains, oh, please fall on us, just kill us, crush us. The idea is they'll want to die during this time, but it seems like they won't be able to somehow. Um, they'll, they'll just want to commit suicide. Oh, rocks fall on us, crush us, rather than allow us to have to endure being before this wrath of the lamb that's coming, the wrath of, of God being poured out 
upon the world. This is what Isaiah is referring to when it says that um, it's gonna come upon them as birth pains and travail as a woman in childbearing and they'll be amazed. Um, and you know, the idea is um, you know, wonder at the, at the sight of God's wrath there in verse uh, eight. And, and they'll be uh, looking at one another with their faces aflamed. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in kind of a crazy situation? You look at the person next to you and you realize, this is crazy. Um, it's gonna be like that, but it's not gonna be fun. It's gonna be horrifying. And that's what it means when their faces will be like flames or every man uh, to his neighbor, um, you know, faces of flames at each other. Verse nine, behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Has this yet happened yet? Of course not. Uh, This is where we know for sure that Isaiah is talking about much further in the future. The day of the Lord is the key there, verse nine, but also destroying the sinners out of the land. That has not yet happened and that's going to happen during the tribulation period and ultimately the battle of Armageddon. So it goes on, verse 10, for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. And I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. What's it mean that a man will be more precious than a wedge of gold? The idea is scarce. To see a man who's able to endure or live through this is gonna be rare. Um, we, we talk about percentages with the COVID virus and, and uh, it's amazing how our predictions, you know, we're really kind of not, not even close. Um, but um, the Bible says during the tribulation period, two thirds of the planet will die. And that'll be in the first part of the tribulation. Um, that's not even the whole thing. Um, so, you know, we, when you, when you kind of look at the, the COVID-19 thing, you kind of have to say, man, that's child's play. People say, is this the end with the COVID-19? Nope. Could be the birth pains that are leading up to the end. It feels kind of apocalyptic with people with their masks walking all over the stores and doing their social distancing and all that stuff. Um, but, but it's going to be a lot more, uh, radical than that, than what we're seeing right now. And we won't be talking in, in those days. We're, you know, as Christians, cannot even be here. But the people that are living on this earth, they're not going to be talking about people who know someone whose grandfather died of COVID. They're going to be knowing people that are their best friends dying during that time because, you know, the, the odds are just so much there. Two thirds of the planet will be killed. And the Lord says, I'm going to punish them for their, their evil. Verse 11 and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. One of the things that you and I should be aware of is that the world right now is very much postured for this event. The arrogancy of the proud is at the all-time high. People think they know more than God. People think that they can, you know, just say, well, we think the Bible's stupid and it's old-fashioned and we know more now because of this or that or the other thing. And they just feel like they know more than God. That's the arrogancy that's being talked about here. And that's gonna be brought, right now it's at a feverish pitch. It's one of the reasons I believe we could be living in the last days because the arrogancy of humanity that flies in the face of God right now, it's, it's huge. It's as huge as it's ever been. 
But it says here that arrogancy is of the proud. It's going to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. You know, um, it's the old pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. That's not only true right now, just the way things work out if you're prideful, but it's going to ultimately be seen in the pride of humanity when they fly in the face of God. When God pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, there's going to be no more haughtiness. That's going to be brought to a low once God shows up in his righteousness, in his wrath. Now, some of you might say, Brad, I don't like this. Um, This is scary. Um, Well, if you're not a Christian, you should be scared. And if you think it's a joke, you might want to read this again. And also, if if you really are interested, you might want to read the whole Bible because the Bible has made thousands of predictions of what's going to happen in the world. And most of them have all come to pass. Only ones that have yet to come to pass are the things that are at the very end. The stuff like this, God pouring out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And I'll tell you, you know, as I read the Bible, I'm realizing more and more that's as sure as the sun, you know, rises in the morning, there's going to come a time where God's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And you can sit there like a preschooler and plug your ears, la, 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 la. I don't want to know about that. I don't, if God is love, he wouldn't hurt people. And you can say all those crazy things that your college professors told you or made you think were true. But I'm here to tell you the Bible is true. It's been true for thousands of years. That's why it's withstood, you know, all the scrutiny and all the, the challenges and all that. It still is alive and well today because what we're reading tonight is going to happen. So if you're not a Christian, yeah, you should be concerned. It is a scary thing to think of God pouring out his wrath upon a world. But the thing that I want to remind you Christians, because I know there's some of you out there that you're like, oh, great, Brett, you're talking about the end times again. And you freak me out when you talk about that. I get that from time to time from people. They tell me, Brett, you know, it's scary, the end times. And and I understand that. But do you understand that the wrath that is going to be poured out is not poured out upon his people? Um, he never destroys the righteous with the wicked. We've read about that over and over in the Bible. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, remember chapter 4 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians talks about the rapture of the church. And why is the rapture of the church happening? To pull his people out of the world before he pours out his wrath on the world. Um, some people say, well, I think the rapture is going to happen after the tribulation period. Post-trib is what they're called. And they're brothers in Christ and sisters who just disagree with, with us. And that's a debate, you know, that people have, um, in-house debate. But, but I'll tell you, it doesn't feel very congruent with the rest of the Bible that God would pour out his wrath upon a world with his children in that world. Um, you know, it's almost like, would you nuke a, a nation if you knew your children were in that nation? If, even if they deserved a nuclear weapon like Hiroshima or Nagasaki or all that, and they were, you were ending a war, would you do that? Like, like you, you know, as a father, you would not destroy your children, even if you were destroying the wicked. And the Bible says that over and over again. The Lord will not destroy the righteous and the wicked um, together. And um, after it talks about the rapture of the church in First Thessalonians 4, it says... Wherefore, we comfort one another with these words. The rapture of the church should be comforting. And then it says in chapter 5, verse 9, For for God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we uh, wake or asleep, uh, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even also as you do. You and I can comfort one another because 
The Lord doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. And we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. Um, and so just like Lot and his family were pulled out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the, the you know, the, the uh, fire and brimstone came down, that's what the Lord's gonna do with his people. Well, Brett, I think Noah had to go through the flood and God saved them in the ark and that's what God's gonna do. He's gonna save his people through the tribulation. Well, you can think that if you want, but I like to think that that would be a good picture of the Jews. The Jews are gonna go through the tribulation, those that have not believed in the Messiah. And that's one of the reasons the whole tribulation is gonna happen, not only to judge the world, but to wake up a nation of Jews. And God's gonna protect those Jews and he's gonna uh, preserve them during that tribulation. That's the picture of Noah. And, you know, uh, Enoch, before the flood came down, Enoch was taken up to be with the Lord. That's the picture of, I believe, the church. Enoch was someone who walked with God and pleased God, and he was taken up before the flood. That's us, the church, if you ask me. So the pictures fit. The Bible fits God's nature. It fits with a pre-trib rapture view. And I think it's um, erroneous, really, to think that God's going to pour out his wrath upon us. Um, well, Brett, you're, you just want to escape uh, the, the tribulation period. And the answer to that is, that's exactly right. And I pray for that often because Jesus taught us to pray for that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass to be able to stand before the son of man. When did Jesus say that? In Luke 21, where he was talking about the end of the world. Um, it's, it's sort of the parallel scripture of Matthew 24 and 25 is Luke 21. So in the context of the end times and the end of the world, the Lord says, pray that you be counted worthy to escape these things. So all that to say, when we read about this, where in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause their arrogancy of the world to cease. If you're a Christian, you have nothing to fear. You can be comforted with these words that the Lord has not appointed us to wrath. Um, that's reserved for people who have rejected God and have walked contrary to God. Um, still, uh, you say, Brett, okay, I'm glad I'm safe, but it makes me sad about the rest of the world. Exactly. The spirit of prof prophecy is Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation tells us. And that's what prophecy should do. People say, well, why do you guys study prophecy? So you get guns and bunkers and save up, you know, MREs and be ready for the end of the apocalypse and all this. Um, that's not why we teach prophecy. The, the, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus Christ. And I don't even know how the guns and bunker thing's gonna work in the apocalypse. Uh, I don't think that's gonna work so well. It's gonna be a horrible time. But we're not even gonna be here for that, I believe. Um, we're gonna be taken up to be with the Lord. So what do we do? What should be our response? We should be all about Jesus Christ telling people of the saving work of the cross. The closer we get to the end, the more I hope your heart is burdened. When we talk about the wrath of God being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, the goal should be that you and I are on fire to teach about Jesus, to point people to Jesus, to lead more and more people to come to a knowledge and a saving uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the answer to prophecy. That's why we talk about prophecy. The spirit of prophecy is... Jesus Christ. Well, he says, um, you know, people are going to be scarce in those days, uh, more than even like a, having a wedge of gold from Ophir, um, which is a place where I guess the gold was particularly pure or something uh, there in uh, Bible times. Therefore, verse 13 of chapter 13, 
I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in that in the day of his fierce anger and it shall be as chaste, as the chaste roe as a sheep that no man taketh up they shall every man turn to his own people and flee everyone into his own land. The earth's going to shake. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, there's going to be, you know, we talk about when's the big one, the big earthquake. And we've had some big ones in, in you know, even in our lifetimes, we've seen, um, you know, earthquakes in diverse places of the world. But um, when you go to Israel with me, one thing that is clear that, that there was an earthquake that was, um, you know, millennia ago, that happened that they believe it was over a 10.0 on the Richter scale. And the reason why is all the archeological digs at the, at the same strata, at the same time period, all the cities were just instantly leveled and the pillars are laying down, everything's broken up, everything's clean, but broken on that same strata in the Middle East. And so it was this massive earthquake. Um, and uh, it, it, it uh, kind of reminds you, there's gonna be a big one, the Bible says, and, and it's gonna make the earth to shake. Now, there's some interesting language here. I wish we had a little more time to go into it. But for you, you know, physicists and geologists and people that are interested in science, you know, uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, Satan being hurled to this earth and what happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 and, and the tohu vabohu thing that we talked about. But what's interesting is if you kind of looked at the world and it's the way our uh, our earth sort of rotates on its axis, um, the, the earth actually wobbles. Uh, if you kind of speed it up and think about it. Uh, the earth going around, of course, the sun, spinning on its axis, but it wobbles as it's spinning on its axis. And that's what we call the seasons. The reason why summer is the way it is, is the earth tilting on its axis is, um, it puts, you know, Portland, Oregon, further away from the sun uh, that, uh, during the winter time. But when the earth wobbles back down, it brings the earth you know, down to where Portland's a little closer to the, to the sun. And so, and so that's what we call summer. And so as the earth is going around the sun, it's spinning on its axis, but it's also sort of wobbling. And therefore you have, you know, fall, winter, spring, summer. If you didn't do your, you know, rocks for jocks class or outer space and solar system in, in school, some of this is like, I don't know anything about that. But what's, what's kind of interesting about that is science tries to figure out when did the earth get its wobble? Because there's evidence that the earth at one point didn't have a wobble and there may not have been the seasons. Remember we talked about the uh, greenhouse effect and how there were times where there was flowers found uh, in some of the, the uh, polar ice caps and stuff in the digestive systems of the furry woolly mammoths. And, and there's questions that science has. And they try to figure out when did the earth get its wobble? <laughs> um, and the question is, is it going to get a worse wobble? It, here's something, think about how cataclysmic this would be. What would happen if the earth flipped upside down on its axis? Well, Brett, I don't even know if we'd feel that. I mean, we're going, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles an hour right now as we're spinning and rotating and revolving and all this, but we don't feel that right now. Um, yeah, but but if, if the earth were to make a major polar axis shift, what would happen with that? Brett, that's that's crazy to even think about that. It is, but listen to this. Uh, we'll We'll give you a sneak preview of Isaiah chapter 24, verse one, listen to this. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and he'll make it waste. It's gonna be destroyed and it will turn upside down and scatter abroad the inhabitants thereof. There's coming a time, according to Isaiah 24, one, the Lord's gonna flip the earth upside down. That's what it says. 
And then look at verse 20 of that same chapter. It says, the earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage or um, like a tent is the idea there. Um, there's coming a time where the, this earth is gonna go through some cataclysmic things. And uh, people talk about that stuff right now as, it's, as, as if it's science fiction. Ooh, the asteroid that's gonna come and smash into the earth. And we talk about it, but nobody is afraid of that because, you know, they call a near miss, you know, still hundreds of thousands of miles away from the earth. And ooh, that asteroid almost hit us. And we're like, oh, that wasn't even that close. But what would happen if an asteroid did hit the earth? Or what would happen if the Lord just went to the earth? Uh, it, it wouldn't take much for the earth to be flipped over and for the inhabitants to be scattered. Um, I'm not trying to scare you uh, if you're not a believer, um, if you're a Christian, we're not even going to be here during that time. We're going to be in heaven safely and sound with the Lord forever. But the earth, it is headed for destruction eventually. Well, Brett, should we just trash the earth then? That's what my Greenpeace, uh, you know, earth worshiping uh, friends here in Portland often say. You Christians just are into trashing the earth. That's not true. We are to be good stewards. The Lord told us to be good stewards of the earth, take good care of it. And so I'm not pro, you know, throwing trash around and all that stuff. I believe in, you know, being good stewards of the earth. Um, I oftentimes believe that it looks a little different than what your Greenpeace people think that looks like. Um, being good stewards of the earth, I think, includes logging and stuff like that, taking care of the forest and all that. We can talk all about that stuff. But the Lord told us what we should be doing. And that, you know, it includes, you know, with animals and with, with the, 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 the trees and having dominion over the earth. Um, but we've kind of lost vision of that. But there's coming a time where the Lord's going to take this earth and fold it up like an old piece of clothing. Have you ever had a favorite pair of jeans that were holy and ripped up and you, you hated to get rid of them because they were the most comfortable jeans you ever did have, but it was time to retire them? Uh, well, that's what's going to happen with the earth. Uh, let me just read it to you. It's Hebrews chapter uh, 1. It says this in verse 10, Hebrews 1.10, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hath laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old like a garment or a piece of clothing. And as a vesture or a piece of clothing, thou shalt fold them up and they shall be changed, but thou art the same and thy years shall not fail. What's the Lord, the creator of the world going to do? He's going to say, you know, the earth is worn out. It's time to fold it up like an old piece of clothing and retire that old pair of jeans. So the earth is going to be retired by the Lord at some point. Um, we're, we shouldn't try to retire it early by being, you know, bad stewards of the earth, but, but the Lord's going to do it all the same. So that's interesting here in verse 13, where it says the earth will be shaken, removed out of her place during the wrath of the Lord of hosts in that day of his fierce anger. Something's going to happen cataclysmically, and that's going to be a brutal time. Glad we're not going to be here for that. Well, verse 15 goes on, everyone that is found shall be thrust through, and everyone that is joined unto them shall fall by the sword. Their children shall also be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses shall be spoiled and their wives ravished. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Now, this is where Isaiah starts to reel in the, his gaze from the end of all things back to his more local situation. He says, you know, the women are going to be, you know, uh, you know, abused. Children will be killed. Who's going to do that? The Medes. 
I will stir up, verse 17, the Medes against them and shall not regard silver. As for gold, they shall not delight in it. Their bows shall also dash the young men into pieces and they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. The eyes shall not spare children. When would this happen? Well, that would be when the Medes and the Persians would come led by Cyrus. Later on, Isaiah is gonna name Cyrus um, and also a guy named Darius, Cyrus and Darius, the Medes and the Persians would come and uh, destroy Babylon, what have you, in 539 BC. Uh, and this is what this is referring to. Now, the reason I love this is the Lord names the Medes. I told you that when Isaiah was prophesying this, that Assyria was the big powerhouse in the world. The Babylonians were the up and comers. But the Medes and the Persians, they were nothing by this time. They were like vagrant tent dwellers that were considered uh, sort of the weakest of the weak. And so here Isaiah is making a prophecy that is so unlikely. It'd be like if, it'd be like this, if I said, I've got a prophecy of the Lord. And I said, the United States, China, and Russia are about to be destroyed. What nation is going to destroy all three of those? Guatemala. <laughs> Guatemala is going to come and wipe out the Russians, the United States, and the Chinese. Um, you would say that's ridiculous. But the reason I share that with you is that that's exactly what they would have said to Isaiah at this time when he said the Medes will come and ultimately destroy Babylon. And, but that's exactly what happened. The Medes and the Persians became this massive army in a short amount of time, and they became super powerful. And uh, they took over much of the known world, and, and Babylon very quickly was taken. If you remember that very night, Belshazzar saw the handwriting on the wall and the Medes and the Persians dried up the Euphrates River and came in through the waterways of Babylon and took over the city. Like it's an amazing story how it happened, but it happened just like Isaiah the prophet, um, you know, a hundred years, or I should say 175 years before that would happen. Here's Isaiah saying it would happen. 175 years beforehand, that's Bible prophecy. Now, by the way, this is where the, your college professors will say, this prophecy couldn't have been written by Isaiah the prophet because it was 175 years before it happened. So this is the Deutero Isaiah. And it sounds so intellectual. Just, it's fun saying Deutero. The Deutero Isaiah. And they even like to say there's a Trito Isaiah, a third dude that was claiming to be Isaiah. But they're basically saying it was a forgery that some guy after the Medes and the Persians came, some forger wrote this and said, I'm Isaiah the prophet and I'm prophesying the Medes and the Persians came. But the only reason they really try to do this, in my opinion, is because they're trying to discredit that God knows the beginning from the end. How could Isaiah the prophet have known that? And the answer, Holy Spirit gave him words to write down. It's called the inspired word of God. And uh, we don't have to try to figure it out and figure out, well, was there another Isaiah? No. And we have proof, by the way, that there's only one Isaiah. We talked about this at the beginning of our study of Isaiah in you know, John chapter 12. And John the apostle said that same Isaiah, talking about the first and the last part of Isaiah, it was one Isaiah. So you know, when my professors in college used to say there's a Deutero Isaiah, I, I always like to say, do you know more about the Bible than the apostle John? Do you know more about Isaiah the prophet? He lived 2,000 years closer to Isaiah than we did, and he claimed it was one Isaiah, and he said it was the same one. And John was the one who was schooled by Jesus Christ himself. So, Mr. Professor, are you willing to say you know more about the Bible than John the Apostle? And, um, and usually they blush, and they can't really uh, say that. Sometimes I've met people that say, yes, I know more than John the Apostle. But then at least you know that they're wacko. All that to say, 
the Medes and the Persians are not going to spare anybody. They're going to be brutal. And they were, and it was ugly. Well, verse 19, it says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, as with fire and brimstone. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt from generation to generation, neither shall the Arabian pitch his tent there, neither shall shepherds make their folds there. Now this is interesting because this has not fully happened in history yet. Um, so this is where some of us wonder, could it be that Babylon will literally be built up again? Because it is kind of desolate right now. And maybe it, maybe it was desolate, but you will find shepherds there to this day. So that hasn't fully been fulfilled. It's not the great city it once was, but it's sort of over centuries declined into nothingness. Um, but I wonder if it will be rebuilt at some point. And this scripture makes me maybe lean that way a little bit, thinking that they're going to rebuild it. And uh, then it's going to be utterly destroyed, uh, maybe during that tribulation period or even the battle, you know, after the battle of Armageddon or something like that. But um, they're not going to even build their tents there, it says there, um, verse 20. But verse 21, the wild beasts of the desert shall lie there and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures of owls and shall they shall dwell there and satyrs shall dance there. Um, which could be goats or demons. Interesting, the word satyr, interesting word there. That's why it's translated as something we don't really know exactly what it is. It's either a goat or some kind of demon. Verse 22, and wild beasts, the wild beasts of the islands shall cry in their desolate houses and dragons in their pleasant places. And her time is near to come and her days shall not be prolonged. Man, this is the destruction of, of Babylon. Um, now, this is what God would do to a nation that was bad to his people, the Jews. Um, and that's kind of the end of that. But verse, uh, let's, let's cover the first part of chapter 14 before we call tonight. It says in verse one, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and will set them in their own land. Remember when I told you that sometimes God, I'm not saying always, but sometimes God calls Israel Jacob and sometimes he calls them Israel. And I, I do notice a little bit of a pattern, again, no big deal, but it seems that the pattern would be that when Jacob's in trouble, they call, God calls him Jacob. When Jacob is doing good or something good is about to happen, he calls him Israel. It's the same guy, same nation, but God calls them different things over different places. This is where in the same verse, God calls them two names. For the Lord will have mercy upon Jacob. Who do you have mercy on? Someone who's bad, Jacob. But then it says, and will yet choose Israel. He chose Israel, which is the same as Jacob, only governed by God. Are you guys with me on that? So um, I, I, again, I just, I see a pattern in the Bible where when God refers to Israel, it's because it's there in their redemptive, more uh, futuristic, uh, put in the right place thing, oftentimes. Not 100%, but uh, many times you'll see that. Jacob's when they're in trouble. So he says that Jacob will he'll set them in their own land, um, which this is happening as we speak, by the way, this prophecy of the Jews being brought back to their land. Let, let's go back to that. You don't want to miss that. Verse one of chapter 40, for the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. And the strangers shall be joined with them and they shall cleave to the house of Jacob and the people shall take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel shall possess them in the land of the Lord for servants 
and handmaids, and they shall take them captives, whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. And it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou were made to serve. Um, this is, you know, Isaiah giving hope and comfort to the children of Israel that God is going to restore them. And this, by the way, has happened in different times in history where the Jews were able to come back to their nation. And there were strangers. The word stranger there in verse one means foreigners that were non-Jews. One of the rules of the laws of Moses, if strangers or foreigners wanted to travel or live with the Jews, they had to jump on board and leave all their idols and their other pagan gods. And they had to get on board with Judaism. Um, and that's kind of what's being said here. Verse four, um, it says that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor ceased? The golden city ceased. Remember the power of Babylon, they'd be destroyed. And the Jews would say, wow, they're, they're long gone now. Um, verse five, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. He who smote the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he that ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and none hindereth. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into singing. Yea, the fir trees rejoice at thee and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since thou art laid down, no feller is come up against us. Suddenly we have Haas from Bonanza talking when it says, uh, since thou art laid down, no feller has come up against us. No, the idea is feller, a tree faller, uh, a lumberjack. Um, that's what it's saying. The trees of Lebanon will be happy, clapping their hands and rejoicing because nobody's sawing them. Um, you, you say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, do you remember in the millennial kingdom, it says all the trees of the field will clap their hands. The earth is in a fallen state. So this is referring to that time when, you know, the Babylonians will be wiped out near and far prophecy and where Christ comes and rules and reigns and there's going to be peace and no longer will there be the evil um, and, the, and the trees of the field are going to rejoice. Even the cedars of Lebanon talked about here. Verse nine, hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations, all they that speak and say unto thee, art thou also become weak as we? Art thou become like us? Thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy of vials, the worm is spread unto thee, and the worms cover thee. Huh? What's that all about? Verse 9 through 11 is talking about not hell, but it says hell there. Well, notice in your margin, this is where we had some confusion, I think, on Sunday. People were like, Brett, you said Satan never went to hell, but hasn't he been to hell? Nope. Um, hell is, is Gehenna. Uh, we use the word hell clumsily. And let me just say this again. There's several places in the Bible that we think of as hell, but sometimes we don't understand our Bible. There's Hades in Sheol, which is like the grave, but also it's a place called Abraham's bosom. Remember Luke chapter 16, where the, the rich guy went to the Hades side and the, and the, the poor beggar went to the, the uh, paradise side. Remember when Jesus died, he first descended before he ascended. He descended in the lower parts of the earth and led captivity captive. Do you remember all this stuff we've covered? So when we talk about hell, usually we English speakers could be confusing one of three or four places in the Bible. We could be talking about hell, like in this context, translated to hell here. It's actually the grave or, and that's why we're talking about worms and stuff, because we're talking about literally the grave, but it also could be referring to 
Hades, which is the part where people who, anybody who dies, who's not a believer uh, back in these days or even today, they do not go to heaven as much as people like say, everybody goes to heaven. Nope. Some people will not go to heaven, but where do they go? They don't go to Gehenna, which is that lake of fire and place of burning. That's at the end after the great white throne judgment. That's more traditionally what we think of as hell. It's not in business yet. But there is Hades, the other side of Abraham's bosom. And that's where people like the rich guy in the story of Luke chapter 16 went, where he says, oh, just give me a drop of water to, on the tip of my tongue. He's, he's sort of in a place of torment there. But that's not hell as, as long-term knows it. Remember in the great white throne judgment, all the people that are in Hades, death and Sheol, Sheol will t- be taken up to the great white throne before God. And if their names are not written in the book of life, then they'll be thrown into Gehenna, which is the final place called hell. So people call this hell, Hades, uh, Abraham's bosom, but it's technically not. You could call it if you really, really want to. Um, and just like the 1611 King James people, they translate it as hell, but that's why they had to put a marginal reference there because it's technically not. It's called the grave or Sheol. Um, I hope you're uh, not confused on that because people get all up in a tizzy when you start talking about this, but it's people not reading their Bibles. Luke chapter 16 tells us a lot about that. Ephesians tells us how Jesus, uh, first before he ascended, he descended in the lower parts of the earth. That tells us when he took people who died who were believers and he led them into heaven. So if a person dies today, they go to heaven uh, if they're a Christian. If they die today and, and they're not a believer, they go to Hades and they'll stand before the great white throne judgment from Revelation 20. I hope we're not making that uh, more confusing, but that's what's being talked about is all these kings and rulers and what have you, they're going to be going to that place of the grave, which would also possibly be Hades, and uh, even the kings become nobody, the rulers and the evil people. Now, some people see also the Antichrist will be one of these people that will go um, even for that season to Hades during the tribulation period um, before the great white throne judgment. And people will look at him after he's dead and gone, after Christ returns, he'll go to Hades. And they see that written here, verses 9 through 11 speaking of the kings of Babylon, which is kind of the Antichrist coming in the Babylon of Revelation. So interesting stuff. But in all this talk about death and hell and all this stuff, then he goes into, O Lucifer, verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, out of the morning? We looked at verses 12 through 17 on Sunday, and uh, and we covered, you know, um, what's the deal with the devil? Um, uh, what's his, where did he come from? When did he fall? What's the scoop? We looked at that in depth. So if you missed that, you want to know more about the devil. Not exactly a fun topic, if you ask me, but we did cover it as we're going verse by verse through the Bible. Well, all that to say, man, we made it through a section. We'll pick it up in chapter uh, um, 14, verse 18 uh, next week. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord, I'm so thankful that we don't have anything to fear. You've not given us over a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Um, I pray, Lord, that we would have the hope of heaven. Lord, stir within my brothers and sisters that hope. And I pray, Father, that you would bless each person, Lord, with confidence in your saving power, that we not be afraid of the wrath that to come. But I pray that we'd be busy sharing the good news with the unsaved and seeing more and more people come to know you. Lord, we know your heart is that you would that none should perish but that everyone would come to repentance and have eternal life. 
So use us, Lord, to speak that message. Light a fire under us just to get busy about the work of your kingdom, Lord, I pray. And bless these, your people, who've covered this section of scripture tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at athecreek.com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.